Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's episode of the Legal Beagle Podcast. Voidir, or Vordire, or any other pronunciation of those two words is Latin for to speak the truth. And I am really fortunate to be joined by one of the best jury consultants that we have in the entire country, Mr. Harry Plotkin. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning, Jonathan. And uh, so let me ask you this. Do you, in your experience, do all jurors tell the truth? And uh, because it's Voidire, <laughs> we'll leave that for no. No, I don't think they do. I'll go on record and say they don't. But I know that you are nationally recognized for the work that you do. You've worked with some of the biggest names in our profession. Uh, let's just start with the basic question of how do you pick a jury? Sure. You know, I think that uh, two things that you have to do when you're when you're picking a jury, and one of them is that you can't be afraid to ask probing tough questions. Um, you know, a lot of lawyers want to get in there and build rapport and be the nicest guy or, or girl in the courtroom and have the jurors like them. And, you know, gosh, these, these jurors are all so nice. I'm just going to keep them. But you got to ask them the tough questions and make sure that the jurors, even the ones that seem like they're perfectly nice and reasonable, aren't going to have some biases. And number two, I think you have to, you never have to, you can never let the jurors self-diagnose their biases you have to ask them questions about how they feel, open-ended questions, and be willing to recognize when a juror may not be good for you, even though they tell you a million times until they're blue in the face that they can be fair and follow the law and they have no issues. So tell me when, when it comes to uh, challenging a juror for cause, meaning there's a, there's a bias that they can't put aside and give you that fair and impartial uh, look at the case, you know, how do you draw that out in, in a way that doesn't offend the, the juror that you're questioning and certainly, uh, but also lets the court know that there is an inherent bias here. There's a problem and there's a cause or there's a challenge for cause that should be considered by the court. Absolutely. Yeah. That's when, when you're getting someone off for, for cause, obviously that's a different story. You got to convince them that they to, to self-diagnose their bias in that situation. And so, um, you know, I think you always start with, you never use the word fair. You never try to suggest that, because you have an opportunity, especially if you're on the plaintiff side, to frame the what bias is and frame what fairness is and what's not fair on a jury. Uh, if you can convince them, first of all, to talk about things that aren't fair, talk about fairness as opposed to can you follow the law, but, you, but instead you say, you know, being honest, who thinks that this law doesn't really seem fair to you or the concept of, you know, giving money for things like pain that have no use or not, it's not a financial uh, loss to the plaintiff, you know, who feels like that's not fair. And, and the word that I always like to use with jurors is you never ask them, can't, would you have a hard time following the law? Because jurors aren't asked to follow the law. They're asked to enforce the law. And if you can frame it in a way that you're saying, you know, at the end of the day, would it be tough to you to enforce a law that you don't believe or agree with in the first place, uh, that makes it a lot easier for jurors to say, yeah, that doesn't seem like something I can, I can do. And, you know, there's a million different ways to go about it with, you know, whether it's, um, you know, if this is a race, are we behind, or are we a step behind, or if this is, you know, the, if the ball's on the 50 yard line, supposed to be right in the middle of the field, where are we? To me, I think the, the phrase that works the best is, is asking jurors, am I facing a, a real uphill battle convincing you to, you know, whatever it is, uh, because jurors feel very comfortable telling you I can be fair. Um, I'm going to give you a fair shot. I'm going to listen to the evidence. But yeah, you're facing an uphill battle. And then when you can get them to quantify that, then you can start getting into convincing the judge that, yeah, this person is not totally impartial. Another word that you don't like to use is problem. You, you just said fair is not a word that you like your attorneys to use. Why, why is problem not a good word to use? You know, because it sounds to the jurors, number one, like it's their problem. And, and the way that I hear it get used a lot is lawyers will get get up there and say, does anyone have a problem with, uh, you know, worry money or does anyone have a problem with, uh, you know, this or that? And and not only do jurors say, wait a minute, he's asking me if I have, I don't have a, you know, I don't have a problem. You're the, you have the problem if you're asking for something that's, I don't think is fair. But it also, the, just the way that it's asked and, and the tone kind of suggests that it's, that somebody has a, there's a problem with them and the way that they think. And so, um, you know, I think that I've just seen it asked so many times and jurors just kind of don't react well to it. I almost never see someone raise their hand and say they have a problem. You know, you're almost kind of intimidating them into saying, of course, I don't have a problem with that. So, uh, you know, I think it has to, when you ask about bias, it has to come from, um, 
you know, it has to be a little self-deprecating. Do, do I have a problem if I'm going to ask you for $10 million or more? You know, do I have a problem if I'm going to be asking you to second guess a decision that a doctor made or that an employer made in a, you know, an employment case? Um, so just framing it to be, it's my problem, not your problem, always goes over better with jurors. <laughs> So at the beginning of next year, beginning of 2022, Arizona is going to become one of the first states, I believe, to eliminate preemptory challenges. Right. And it's just going to be, you know, strikes for cause now. Arizona has also been notoriously a jurisdiction where you don't get a lot of time to do jury selection. And so this has been a, an ongoing conversation with a committee that's, I guess, a task force that the uh, Supreme Court has put together to look at how to give attorneys a fair shot here. One of the things that we've always relied on is the demographic profiles we get when we get into the courtroom. And I, you know, there's some content on your website and you said, you know, be wary of that. And, and, you know, really don't draw so many conclusions or don't jump to conclusions just because of some of the demographic profile. Can you kind of expand on that and talk to me about why that demographic demographic profile can be dangerous? Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I almost, I, almost. I, I try to never stereotype jurors when I get in based on their race or their gender or, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, and I get asked a lot by lawyers sometimes, especially it's it's more of the old fashioned lawyers that ask me this. The, the, the newer lawyers, I think, get it. But uh, I get asked a lot. Hey, you know, here's my case. Uh, do I want men or women? Do I want older or younger jurors? And, and the answer to that is almost never. You know, the demographics is almost never. There's a few exceptions I've come across, but almost never the best predictor of how jurors are going to react. In every case, there are going to be some older jurors that'll be great for you and some that are bad for you, some younger jurors, some men or women. You know, the perfect jury probably has six men and six women and a mix of older and younger. As long as their experiences and attitudes and expectations about the things that the case that your case involves are good for you. Um, and so, and I've done a million different kind of big data focus groups where we're profiling and, and Demographics never come out as almost never come out as important. Um, now, you know there are times where you know there are some you know stereotypes about race or age that sometimes are a little bit true, but it's usually because it's based on a, a common shared experience. You know, um, you know, for example, there's a, out here in Los Angeles, there's a view that you know Asian American jurors tend to be kind of bad for plaintiffs. You know, that's not always the case. I've had tons and tons of Asian jurors who are great, but some of that may be a little bit true because first generation. Um, you know, really from any, not just Asia, from, from any country, first generation uh, immigrants tend to not really understand or agree with our civil justice system. And, but if you ask them about that, you know, and I always do that whenever I get a juror on there, who's clearly born in another country, I always like to ask them, you know, how do you feel about our system of where we, where we award money for these things? And, you know, it, probably eight of 10 of them say, yeah, I don't really like it. It seems a little ridiculous or unfair. Um, but the two out of the 10 who have no problem with it are great jurors. And the people who were born in this country, the same thing. If you ask that same question to everybody, that question is much more important than their ethnicity or anything like that. So, you know, I, you know, I, you never want to judge a book by its cover because, you know, you're really missing probably some good jurors and some bad jurors if you're making an assumption based on their race or their age or, or whatever. Talk to me more about uh, this idea of money, because it is it is an uncomfortable conversation to have, not in a courtroom, sometimes within your family, within your circle of friends. How do you break down those barriers or how do you how would you tell someone to to get over that or at least to be able to discuss it freely and, and talk about it? Because these cases we're seeking money justice. I mean, that, at the end of the day, that's what the law allows. Sure. Yeah. You, I mean, you can't run from it. You can't uh, avoid asking those questions. Um, and, and I think you got to look the jury in the eye and, and not, you know, the hardest part is look them in the eye and ask for a lot of money or tell them in voir dire, you're going to ask for a lot of money without them seeing you sweat, but you can't run from it. Uh, and you got to tell them, you know, if, if it's a case where you want to be upfront about how much you're asking for, whether you want to give a specific dollar figure, like some, some lawyers like to do, or kind of suggest generally it's going to be, you know, many millions of dollars or whatever, or more, more than a million dollars or whatever it is, you have to acknowledge to them. I know that that's a lot of money. We know that. And, but we're going to be seeking a lot of money for a lot of harm. Uh, but, you know, what are your feelings about that? And one thing that I always preach that I think is really important, especially important with money, is um, your voir dire questions. It's a concept that I call kind of putting jurors on an island. 
with your questions, which means there's no place to escape. There's no safe answers. Um, you know, you're, you gotta, if you ask them a yes or no question or, or a question that has a safe answer, you know, can you follow the law when it comes to damages? It's real easy for somebody who's pretty conservative about money to say, yeah, yeah, I can. Or, you know, can you follow the law? Yes. Uh, what are your, you know, but if you ask them a really tough question, I'll give you an example. Uh, and this is one I love to ask about money is, you know, setting aside whether or not you think that you can follow the law and be fair about money. Uh, what are your feelings? Tell me, what are your feelings about whether it seems fair and important or maybe a little bit unfair and, or, or unnecessary to give, you know, for example, money for things like, you know, pain or mental suffering or things that aren't a financial loss and force them to give an answer that there's no real safe answers. And if they give you a safe answer and they're cagey, push them a little bit, but understand that they're probably being cagey for a reason, but try to push them. No, but what are your feelings about? I know you can do it. You know, well, I, I can, I can follow the law. Well, I understand that, but what are your feelings about whether that seems fair or, or not fair to you or your, just your feelings on it? You know, when you put them on an island and you make them, it's really hard for jurors to lie when they have to give an answer like that um, in an open-ended way. And so uh, it tells you a lot when they're cagey and it tells you a lot when they refuse to answer the question. So, uh, you know, I think that, you know, you, you just get them talking and, and get them talking about just the principle of fairness when it comes to, to money or, or whatever issues are in the trial. I like that you acknowledge that uh, an ask of multiple millions or more can be a lot of money. And you just said it, you said it so nonchalantly, but you also said, you also, it, you, I think you recognize that it is a lot of money and it's okay to say that. I think sometimes attorneys feel like they don't want to, they want to believe their case is worth $10 million and they don't want the jury to think that they don't realize $10 million is a lot of money. It's a lot of money, right? Especially and, in first and sometimes yeah. people have a hard time with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. for sure. So in a situation like California, you can do mini openings. So you get to frame the case a little bit and, and you talk a lot about case framing on, again, there's, there's, I'm going to put your website up here so people can go check it out. Um, there's a, a ton of really valuable content on there. And one of the things you talk about with case framing is using this process of jury selection to frame your case in a subtle way. How do you do that in jurisdictions where you cannot do a mini opening, where you don't have the luxury of talking about the facts of the case? You know, I think you, you can, uh, depending on what your judge will allow, I mean, obviously some places outside of California without a mini opening, um, you can sort of drop facts about your case into the questions. And I know some judges will shut you down immediately and some judges will let you do it. If you say, you know, for example, hey, one thing that you're going to hear in this case is that my client was riding a motorcycle and I know some people have issues or my client was lane splitting or, or you're going to hear that my client had a couple of beers or whatever it is. You can usually get away with dropping some a couple of your bad facts in there and asking them about it. Uh, but if you're trying to trying to frame the case, um, you know, you you can certainly ask them. To me, I think the the best way to precondition your jurors or persuade them during voir dire is to persuade them with their own experiences. You can't sit there, you know, it's not, you're not going to do very well if you say, "Would everyone agree here that you know?" Uh, and then just spat off your your themes in the case. Everyone here agreed that you know drivers have to be safe, and everyone agreed that this. Talk to them about their own experiences, their own approach. You know, how many of you here, um, you know, for example, uh, you know, drive, you know, more safely when, you know, when it's hard to see, when it's dark or when there's fog outside? What what do you do? What are some precautions you take so that you're you're basically conditioning them with their own approach and making them kind of remind themselves of the things that they do to try to get them to understand that it, hopefully these are things that, that you know, your client did. Um, but try to really remind them of things that would agree with what, your plaintiff did or things that obviously the defense didn't do. So you're kind of getting them thinking along those lines. Um, and, and that's the kind of the best way I think in voir dire to precondition people and frame people about your case. Um, you can also use their biases kind of against the, the other side in a case. I mean, you can build up a straw man, you know, for example, you know, in cases where we have a, a, a employment, uh, you know, disability discrimination case where someone wasn't accommodated, you can talk to them about how much they hate it when somebody, claims to be disabled and couldn't work because then you're going to be talking about, Oh, and by the way, my client in this case is not saying that even though you'll hear the word disabled, uh, you will hear that this, that he wanted to work, but he was just seeking an accommodation to help him continue working. So kind of using, bringing up, you know, their, their biases to build a straw man to show the jurors that your client is the opposite of whatever they, <laughs> they have an issue with also is a good way to start framing your case in voir dire. Tell me a little bit about first impressions. We we've heard in 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 more general 
conversation that, you know, first impressions, first dates, first time you meet someone, uh, you know, it's, it's the most important thing. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that in the context of the courtroom and the jury, specifically jury selection? You know, I think to some degree, um, I think it can be overcome, certainly, if you have a good case and, and jurors are surprised. And so, um, so I'm kind of going to answer that both ways. I think when it comes to the impression of the lawyers, first impressions do matter quite a bit. Uh, I think that if you come across poorly in the first few minutes of the, the jury being introduced to you and your voir dire and you're arguing with a juror or you're not coming across as friendly and welcoming or reasonable, I think that can really... Uh, they can hold it against you probably the rest of the trial. Although you could overcome it if you if you just had a bad few minutes. I mean, you can't overcome it. But I think that they do form impressions pretty quickly about um, the lawyers. Uh, the thing that I would say that you can overcome, and and kind of this goes back to a mini opening or even voir dire if you don't have a mini opening. I know, and I've seen this a million times. If a juror, if you're sort of, they do wait till the opening statement to judge you in your case. And uh, if you kind of soft sell your case a little bit during your mini opening or during jury selection and you're really not sharing any of your good facts and they're kind of going, okay, I, I hear this lawyer saying that they're going to prove their case, but it sounds like there's not a lot to me. And then they hear some great facts in your opening statement. Once you pick the jury, um, they go, wow. I mean, so you want, you do want to, if you oversell your case too early, as much as that may, might make a great first impression, it actually ends up killing you. And so if you kind of undersell your case first, but you leave the possibility open that it might be stronger. Um, I think that second impression during your opening can be more important than your first impression. How much does body language matter? Does the attorney's presence in the courtroom matter? And, and how much time do you spend with your clients on that part of, of getting ready for jury selection? You know, I don't do a ton of coaching of the, of the lawyers. Um, I don't like to necessarily interfere with their style too much because every lawyer has a different style. And now if I notice something, obviously I'll, I'll you know, they're, they're being abrasive or, or rubbing jurors the wrong way or, or saying who's got a problem with, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pull them aside and try to help them out and, or, and try to correct it as soon as I can. Uh, but not too much. I mean, every lawyer has their own, their own style and some are very factual and some are very soft-spoken and some are very, you know, fiery and passionate and some are, some are just, you know, very uh, likable and, and affable with the jurors could, could almost sit on the bar and, you know, chit chat the jurors. So, uh, now, but when it comes to uh, the juror's body language, um, that sometimes can tell you something. You can tell if a juror is just hostile to the case. Um, but, you know, I always tell people in, in jury selection, don't read too much in their body language because we all know that jurors are, most of them are not so pleased to be there in the first place. And they could be crossing their arms or looking angry because, you know, there was a lot of traffic coming to court or they're just not so pleased to be there. So um, I, I don't read too much into body language. You talk about the four objectives of jury selection, and these are right from, from your website. And I just want to go through each of them and then ask for you to expand on these. So the first one, building foundation to excuse jurors for cause. What does that mean? So uh, obviously, and especially in, in Arizona now that this is coming up, I mean, cause is so important. Um, I would say that if you have, unless you have the best case in the world, and even if you have the best case in the world, if you're not getting at least a couple of cause challenges, there's something wrong. And if you have a case that involves, you know, some kind of issue like motorcycles, drinking, um, you know, med mal against, you know, against doctors, I mean, something you should be, if you're not getting at least four or five cause challenges, there's something wrong, you're missing something because there are, in any case, in any venue, there are just going to be some jurors in that jury pool who are going to be against you no matter what. If you were to take the first 12 blindly, you probably, you'd never get a unanimous verdict, probably in any case, unless you were real lucky. And so uh, making sure that you get some people for cause when and building foundation means that first step, you can't just ask them right away, who can't be fair from the, from the get go, because all you'll really get is the people who probably don't want to be there in the first place, or, you know, the, maybe the couple people who are just really, really honest. Most jurors though, have to be moved along politely. And so first you have to start seeing who has little issues with, you know, suing doctors, big damages, whatever, you know, whatever it is, motorcycles and bicycles and things like that. And just kind of seeing, okay, where, who are the people that I need to dig deep down deeper and, and at least get my foot in the door with them. Let's go back for a second, because at the beginning, we talked about the Latin meaning of Wadir, meaning to speak the truth. And you said, do you think jurors always speak the truth? How do you, how do you get someone who is maybe not comfortable in a room of people they've never met before with attorneys asking them questions and a judge sitting on the bench 
to tell you, yeah, they have a problem with people that ride motorcycles when they don't want to raise their hand when you ask that question to the group. How, how do you, is there any technique or strategy to dig deeper and, and get those people to feel comfortable enough to be honest? Sure. I think it helps when uh, you have somebody else break the ice first. I mean, you usually want to find your most outspoken. There's always at least one one uh, person out there who's super outspoken and just talks, 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 get them talking. And and you want to thank those people. I mean, when, when you have a bad juror on there who's got some biases and who's willing to talk about it, the one mistake I see get made quite a bit is for the lawyer to either sort of avoid it because they don't like the bad answers or argue with them a little bit. Uh, but what if this and what if that? What if the law? Because every time the other jurors see a lawyer not seem to appreciate the bad answers, uh, it kind of shuts them down. Oh, I don't want to be cross-examined too, or I don't want to, you know, um, called out for these things. So when you find that, uh, so the first thing I would say is, yeah, never ask a group question and then let silence, you know, move on to your next question because the jurors don't answer it. There's something weird that happens with jurors. I would, you know, at least half the time where they have this telekinetic thing where if you ask a question and it could be something as simple as anyone here ever driven a car and the whole panel just sits there and nobody says anything. And then the lawyer just kind of, oh, okay, that's a, that's all no. And, I, and they move on to the next question. When you move on to another question without getting an answer on any question, the jurors all kind of think, oh gosh, if, if we don't say anything, we're going to get out of here real quick. And so they just don't say anything. So you always have to call on jurors individually. Well, how do you feel about it? Um, so you always want to try to then pick somebody who's pretty loud and pretty outspoken once the ice gets broken, the jurors get a lot more comfortable talking. And once somebody expresses a bias and you as a lawyer say, thank you so much. That's exactly what I asked you, asked you to do. I told you, you're not going to hurt my feelings. And I want, I want to thank you for that. Even though that was, a, you know, you just blasted, you know, motorcyclists or lawsuits or whatever it is. And so that makes it really easier down the line for the other jurors who are a little bit more shy, but you got to ask a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one questions. You have to go to every juror on, on at least a few questions and say, how do you feel about it? Um, because otherwise there are people who will just, I'm sure you've seen it, just hide out, not say anything. And then you get back there to, to do your strikes and you go, oh gosh, you know, juror number seven and 13 and 14, uh, we didn't hear a peep from. Does that mean that they're great jurors? And, you know, going back to what we talked about, about to speak the truth, I'm not a big believer that jurors are out there to lie. There's a, you know, I don't think there are a lot of stealth jurors who are just sitting there hoping to get on your jury and, uh, and lie to you about how they feel. Um, but I think there are a lot of jurors who are either because they're shy or because they really more because they want to believe that they're fair, but they're not necessarily the most fair. They're a little bit conservative about lawsuits that they don't really like to speak up and they may not recognize their own biases. And so you got to get them talking. Um, so you got to ask, you know, I don't love group questions except to introduce the question, but I think you got to then go to as many jurors as you can. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? Even if they say, oh, you know, I, I feel the same way that this person does. I can't tell you how many times we've asked a, a juror that I've written a note said, hey, ask this to juror number 14. And they have an incredibly strong opinion and they wouldn't have spoken up. So so I think that's the best way. You just got to you got to talk to each one of them one by one. That's a fantastic point, Harry, because I think you're right. I, I don't think juries or jurors, excuse me, are trying to lie. I think it's that they have these biases. We all have bias, right? And right. they want to be able to say that they're fair, that they can set those aside. When the reality is those biases are strong. They're very either opinionated about something or they have very strong feelings. And, but they want to believe, everyone wants to believe they are fair. I, I think that goes back to grade school. I always talk about trading like snacks back when you could do that in grade school. And you want to feel like it's a fair trade. You want to feel like you can be fair and not just take advantage of people. And I think that's, the general idea going into you know a courtroom is I can be fair. I can listen to what both parties have to say when those biases may disallow you to really hear what each side is presenting and, and make a, uh, I think, a, or be part of a fair outcome or an impartial outcome. Yeah. That's, that's some of the challenge. And I do think, you know, when, when you use the phrase brutal honesty, I think, which is a great phrase, I think um, there's a tendency to say, be brutally honest to me. And that's helpful. I think the, the thing that gets the phrase that's underused is being brutally honest with yourself. I think you got to let the jurors know it's not just that you're holding back to me. It's that are you really thinking, are you giving this enough thought and being brutally honest with yourself when it comes to, you know, all these things? Because a lot of jurors, I think, sit there and they don't, you know, the judge is there and, and, and there's 50 people in the room and they don't want to say something controversial, but they also don't want to imagine sometimes that maybe they have an issue with whatever it is. And so, um, you know, really convincing them, you know, are, 
you know, and that's why I think the, the phrase uphill battle is a good stepping stone to, to bias because jurors have an easier time saying, yeah, I guess it wouldn't be an uphill battle for you, but I can be, fair. you know, it allows them to still say I can be fair, but it's an uphill battle. And then when, but once they said that now you, now there's blood in the water and you can <laughs> probably convince them, well, wait a minute, you know, how steep is it? And tell me about it. And, and then they start to realize maybe there's an issue. Yeah. Objective two, identifying unreceptive jurors to use your peremptory challenges. So let's take it out of Arizona and just go to anywhere else where you still have those. How do you identify unreceptive jurors? You know, I think it comes down to, again, uh, not letting your jurors self-diagnose their biases because on cause, those are all people who you've gotten to admit, yeah, I have some issue there. But like we just talked about, there's a lot of jurors who you'll never get to admit that they're it can't be fair and they can talk, but you can get them to say things about how they feel about the issues or how they feel about life or what their expectations are that tells you or tells me this person, as much as they think they can be fair, they, they just wouldn't be, wouldn't be right in a case like this. And so, you know, in states that allow peremptory challenges, um, you know, for me, it's enough if we can identify, it doesn't bother me if there's some people we don't get for cause because we have some peremptory challenges and we're going to use them. Um, so just getting them talking about the issues in a way that you don't necessarily, where there's no pressure of getting them to say that they can't be fair. Um, but understanding, okay, you know, there's certain things that if I hear it, I know they're just going to be awful for us at the end of the end of the day, no matter how fair they, they think or claim they're going to be. And so, um, you know, you always want to have a mix. I mean, you always want to make sure you get enough cause challenges because there should be some, and, but you always want to make sure that, okay, for the folks who say they can be fair, I need to know the ones who who are going to be lousy at the end of the day. Cause there's a lot of judges that won't give you any cause and all you have is preemptory challenges. And so it doesn't really matter if you, you know, in some of these venues, if, if the judges only give you a very short amount of time to voir dire, you know, here in California, if they give you only 30 minutes for 24 jurors or more jurors, we're not really going to even try to get cause because that takes, that's a lot, that's pretty time intensive. We're just going to try to, in some of these cases, figure out who's bad for us and use our preemptories as, as well as we can. Um, now hopefully in Arizona, I mean, I, I want to go back to this cause I'm sure that you have some, some folks from Arizona who are sitting there going, gosh, that's not going to help me at all. <laughs> you know, I, and I'm hopeful and I, I know the jury's still out on it. Uh, hopefully knowing what the law is going to be, hopefully judges will give you more time and hopefully judges will be a lot more liberal about granting cause because they know that there's no peremptories. I mean, I think a big motivator of, of judges to deny cause when they probably should is to say, ah, that's what the peremptories are for. And I think this person can be fair. I'm hoping that judges, if you get someone to just say, you know, the defense is a little bit ahead in Arizona, a judge who normally wouldn't have granted that is going to say, yeah, I kind of have to, you know, in this case, but you know, I don't know. It may be judge to judge. Have you gotten any feedback so far on that? No, there's more questions than there are answers at this point. And that's the concern Harry, is what you just said. The, the idea that these judges and, and I'm speaking from personal experience seem to want to rehabilitate every juror that you could strike for cause. And then, as a juror, I can imagine if I'm in that juror's seat and the judge is saying, but you can still be fair. I know you said it was an uphill battle, but you can still be fair. And the juror's like, uh, what am I supposed to say to this judge? Yes, yes, I can. And you as the attorney, when you really worked hard to prove that there was some inherent bias, there was some problem really identified a, a prejudice, something that's going to cause an issue with getting a fair jury. The judge just says, ah, I think they're fine. I think I, we can let them on. I, I do hope that what you said becomes the norm in Arizona where they give you a little bit more time and they are a little bit more liberal with striking for a cause. I don't think they're going to go crazy. And I don't know if there's going to be any uniform way that this is handled. I think it may be judge to judge. And so you may get different decisions based on the judge that you, you have before your case. And I, so I, I worry a little bit about that. I mean, time will tell how this, how this plays out, but that's a concern that I think, I would say not just the plaintiff's bar. I think the defense bar has the same concern. I don't think that's, I think it's uniform across the board because you get used to doing it a certain way and now you lose that opportunity. And I get the reason for it. I've read a lot about why they've done this, but I think there's a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of uneasiness as we proceed forward into this new way of, of selecting juries. Absolutely. And I think it obviously benefits uh, the lawyers. I mean, it, it it makes your skills much more important and it benefits the lawyers who are better at getting cause and who are better at, uh, you know, I don't know if this is on, on my list because, uh, you know, I haven't really written those jury tips in a couple of years, but um, one thing that I think has become more and more important. And I think today is probably the, to me, it's the most important thing that I do with, with uh, lawyers and jury selection is prehabilitating people and doing prehab. 
uh, and keeping your good jurors off for cause. And I think in, in Arizona, that's going to be especially critical. Uh, it's a critical here, but because every every juror that uh, you can convince who otherwise probably you'd lose for cause that you can convince because you get to go first and you before the defense gets up there at all and you only have and you don't want to get to come back and rehabilitate those folks. Um, you can talk about and, and frame what bias is and you can convince some folks who probably are really great for you that they can be fair. And every juror like that, you you convince to not talk their way off for cause. You're basically taking away a strike from the defense, a peremptory out here in California and in Arizona. Uh, that's I mean, that person's on the jury. I mean, if you can get multiple people like that and convince them that they can be fair. So that's a really important skill. I, I don't know if you want to talk about it now or talk about it a little later, but uh, that's so critical everywhere. No, let's dive into it right now. So that way people that are like really hanging on what you just said can understand what that means about prehabilitate. Right. I mean, it's funny, I, you know, I've kind of developed my philosophy over the years, just picking so many juries, you know, 40, you know, probably 30 to five to 40 juries a year and doing a ton more focus groups and talking to jurors. And I more and more, you know, we used to, you know, talk about the idea that, you know, it's called jury selection, but, you know, it's really deselection and you're really just deselecting and you can't keep any jurors. Uh, you know, and, and you always tell your plaintiff, if there's somebody who's just dynamite juror, you always, always have to tell your plaintiff, don't worry, that person's not going to be on the jury. The defense is going to strike them. And, you know, there's nothing you can do. But the more and more I've you know, been doing this, and especially in the last few years, I've realized there are ways to keep your good jurors. You know, and one of them is obviously to when you've got a ton of really good jurors, and even if you have maybe one or two that aren't great, you certainly can try to get them on your jury by passing. I don't know if in Arizona, I don't know if it's quite the same, but here in California, if you if you like the first 12 in the box and you say, we, your honor, we accept the 12 is currently constituted. You don't lose your strike. If the defense then strikes somebody and now it's a different makeup of 12, you still retain your strikes. And so, uh, but uh, prehabbing jurors to me is incre incredibly important. It's something I always do in almost every type of case, the better the case, the more I do it. And basically the way it works is like I said, you know, we get to go first as, as plaintiffs, we get to get up first. We get to, tell the, the jurors and, and address issues and, and frame what bias is. And so I'll use a real uh, simple example that I do at the most in, 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 let's say, a sexual abuse case. If you get up there and you know, gosh, the defense is sitting there thinking, OK, as soon as I get up there, I'm going to identify every person who's been the victim of sex abuse, uh, who has strong feelings about it, who's got a relative who is a victim of sex abuse. And I'm going to say, hey, it's, you know, this probably hits too close to home, right? I mean, you have really strong feelings about this and probably you couldn't be impartial. And they're expecting all those people to say, yeah, you're probably right. And some of them will be crying and some of them, you know, and, and they're going to, okay, those those 12 people on the jury, I'm going to, or sometimes more, I'm going to get them all off for cause. Great. When you get up there first and you say, hey, and you address that, who here has been a victim of, you know, sexual abuse and who here has, friends and family and who here has strong feelings about, um, you know, uh, about this issue. And, you know, who here has seen a, a school, let's say you're suing school, a school district, who here has seen a school that really just did not do enough to keep, you know, students safe. And you get all those people and they've all talked about it a little bit, or at least raised their hand. Um, you don't have to spend a lot of time on it. You can just get them to raise their hand. Uh, and the, and the defense is going, okay, here's my, you know, they're doing my work for me. Here's, you know, 15 jurors who I'm going to get off for cause on my checklist. And you go through each one of them and you say, now, you know, having strong feelings or, or having these experiences doesn't make you incapable of being fair. Um, and in fact, you know, you can be perfectly fair. And, and I always tell jurors also, um, you are allowed to feel sympathy. There's no rule that says you can't feel sympathy. Everybody here is going to feel sympathy. That doesn't make you an unfair juror. You're allowed to get angry. Uh, if the evidence makes you angry at a defendant, you're allowed, absolutely allowed to, to get angry at the evidence. Um, all I want to know is, so for the, all of you folks who, who told you told me you've had this kind of experience uh, and you go through one by one and say, has that experience told you that that sometimes schools don't do enough to protect kids? Like, yep. And is that, has that experience basically taught you that when schools do those kind of things, that they should be held accountable? Yeah, it has. Perfect. That's what the law says. So my only question to you is, can you wait for the evidence and let the evidence tell you whether you have a reason to be upset at this defendant or not? Um, and most jurors, you know, nine out of 10 will say, yeah, I can do that. You're not going to pre, you're not going to just assume that they're guilty without any evidence, right? No, of course not. And if the evidence convinces you that this school did nothing wrong, um, you're not going to find against them anyway. That wouldn't be, would that be fair to you? No, of course not. Okay. So you can be, you can be totally fair. And they, you know, they can have the strongest feelings in the world. If you can go through one by one and, and basically reframe it and tell them, you know, you've been a victim of sexual abuse, but that doesn't mean that you are going to just believe 
you know, this without any any evidence. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can be fair. You know, as long as you you arm them and you say you're allowed to feel sympathy, you're allowed to get angry. And but can you wait for the evidence to decide? They go, oh, I get it. OK. And and the jurors who want to help. I mean, we always also one thing we talk about a lot is that I hear the complaint that, you know, pro plaintiff jurors are just too honest. And they're the ones who always talk their way off the jury and say that I, they have a bias. And the pro defense jurors are the ones who I can be fair. Uh, when you kind of do this and you kind of arm them with this way of thinking about it, you, you tend to keep those folks and they kind of go, oh, I get it. OK, yeah, I'm going to. And and when the defense gets up there, they go, I'm going to give you a fair shot. But I can tell you, if the evidence convinces me your your school or your defendant did something wrong, I'm going to be pissed off. But that's I'm allowed to feel that way. Yeah. And there's nothing they can say about it. And so every one of those jurors, now you're not going to necessarily keep all those jurors if the judge tries to rehabilitate them or convince them that they, oh, sorry, this is the judge. The judge will usually help you, actually. If the defense tries to say, well, you know, you, you know, you can't be fair, you may not keep all of them. But if there's 12 of them and, the, and, and now the defense only gets two of them off, that's 10 more people. I mean, in a state where you only have six peremptories, they're not going to have enough peremptories to get rid of them. And in Arizona, if you can convince, you know, uh, six of those folks, they're, they're all on the jury. And so that's an incredibly important skill that I would actually bump up there to probably number one if you have a good case with good facts and, uh, you know, like, uh, and there's a you know million kind of facts. I'm doing that in a case next week against Lyft where, you know, if you had a negative experience with Lyft or a corporation, um, you know, you can still be fair. Can you, can you wait for the evidence and decide whether you have a reason to be angry or not? I love that. That's, so, that's gold, Harry, because you, you, you're basically saying to the judge, which is really the the final decider here, hey, look, we asked him to wait for the evidence. We explained that if the evidence does not prove that the plaintiff is uh, more likely than not the prevailing party, I'm using technical terms there for those that are right. not attorneys, I apologize. Harry said it better. But <laughs> if, if the, right, but then you say, if I'll use your example, if the school district did nothing, nothing wrong, you're not going to find, you know, against them. If they did nothing, if the evidence shows they did nothing wrong. I love that. Cause what are they going to say? They're going to say, yeah, of course, I'm not going to find that they did something wrong. If the evidence doesn't, doesn't show that. What is, how is the defense going to try to destroy that potential juror? I just, I, it's yeah. such a great way of pre-framing the entire jury selection and really putting yourself in a position to keep a lot of those really good jurors that, that could be advocates for you in that, in that room when they go back and deliberate. Because I think one of the things that defense relies on to get off jurors for cause is uh, I, I think they, they sort of trick jurors by making them think that if they are going to feel sympathy or they're going to get upset by an issue, that that means that they can't be fair. And that's not at all how it I mean. So you have to tell them I think it's two, two critical things you have to say. You have to tell them you are allowed to feel sympathy. That's not the law never says you can't feel sympathy. Um, you know, you don't have to leave sympathy at the door as long as it's not driving, the, you know, driving the car. Um, and number two is convincing people, you know, that, you know, you're allowed to tell them you are allowed to get upset if the evidence gives you a reason to get upset at somebody. You're allowed to get upset at the plaintiff if you think that this is that they're that they're lying to you, um, you know. Uh, and so you're, you're you're allowed to respond to the evidence as long as you're not reacting to just the accusations themselves. Um, you know, sometimes an analogy I'll use, too, is to say, you know, how many of you folks uh, have strong feelings about murder? You know, does that mean you couldn't be a, a, a judge in a murder uh, trial? I mean, of course you could, because you would decide whether the question here is not whether or not sexual abuse is OK. The question here is not about whether building a defective product is OK. The question here is or, or running a red light or whatever, causing an accident is, did it happen in this case? Um, and if, you, have, you know, so so if you tell those folks those kind of things, yeah, you really get them. And, I, and I've seen it a million times where your really good jurors go, oh, you can just see, oh, I get it. OK, I'm going to. You know, I'm, I'm here to do justice in this case, but I'm going to be fair. And it's true. I mean, we, we, we just want jurors to be fair. We don't want we don't necessarily want people who um, are going to just fine for us no matter what. But, you know, we don't want to lose those folks who really get pissed off by the wrongdoing the defendants do. So um, so really important to, to do. And now you're, you're going to lose a couple. Probably there's a couple who are just going to be too honest or don't want to be on the jury. You know, the defense can get up there and, and ask them, well, but are you more probably prone to believing accusations than everybody else. And, you know, you may have a couple that, that feel that way. Um, but if you can, you know, if you can keep every juror that you keep that otherwise you would have lost is another strike you've taken away from the defense. I love that. Objective three, convincing your jurors that they share values with your case and your client. I think you've obviously been talking about what this means. Uh, is there, is there a way to align a, a juror with your client 
in a situation where you don't get to do a mini opening, you don't get to talk anything about what the case is going to involve. How do you, how do you kind of figure out what kind of value is a juror may have, whether that aligns with, with the plaintiff? You know, usually that comes down to if there's some critical um, thing that your client did or the, or the defendant did that you want to convince jurors that they would have done the opposite uh, to the defendant or the same as, you you know, just talking to them about their own experiences and their own approaches and making sure, okay, that it's exactly the same that, you know, just re-reminding them of something that later on in the trial, they're going to say, oh, that's what the plaintiff did. I do that all the time. And I'll, I'll give you an example that, you know, because there's a lot of things that jurors may judge your client unfairly if you haven't made them think about it. But if you get them to think about it, they feel differently. Like a, a great example is, you know, delay in treatment. You know, oh, this crash happened and and they didn't go to the ER and they waved off. I didn't want to get any medical treatment. They didn't see a doctor for a month. How, you know, how is this? And now this person's claiming that they have some permanent back injury and they went back to work, three, you know, two days later. Um, you know, if the first impression I think of jurors is, yeah, that seems kind of suspicious and that doesn't seem right. But, you know, you talk to him in voir dire about, you know, how many are you are the types of folks who, you know, uh, tries to avoid going to the doctor if you notice some some issue and you try to see if it's going to get better, um, you know, or, or, you know, you may, may wait, you know, a week or more. How much and you talk to him about it, you know, and eight out of 10 jurors will probably tell you, yeah, I don't I don't rush right to the to the doctor right away. So, you know, my family has to drag me. You know, does that mean that you didn't have an injury, a pain to begin with? Or are you just trying to, you know, so you talk to him about those things and they kind of. They think, oh, yeah, that's what I do. And then when they hear it in the trial, they go, oh, that makes sense. You know, in voir dire, if you want to, you can then link it. You can, you know, if a judge allows you, you can say, now, one of the things that you're going to have to decide is whether it meant anything that uh, my client didn't go see a doctor for three weeks after this this crash. Anyone going to think, you know, gosh, if he didn't, then that must mean he, he wasn't hurt. And only if you've already talked to them about their approach, do they kind of say, oh, yeah, no, that's, you know, or, or same thing with going back to a job. I mean, how many of you? You know, how many of you that have ever gone to work when you were sick or in pain and just toughed it out? And, you know, oh, yeah, I do that all the time, of course. You know, and then when you when you say, well, one of the things you're going to hear is, you know, my client continued to work after this accident. Is anyone and he's going to tell you it's because he felt like he had to keep working and tough it out. Is anyone going to think, gosh, if he went back to work, he can't be that hurt. And once you've kind of made them think about their own experiences, then they go, oh, no, I'm not going to hold it against them. So those are the kind of things I'm talking about, making sure that, you know, preconditioning him with their own lives as opposed to just theory, you know, if you just do it theoretically, uh, you know, it doesn't really work and jurors kind of think they're being manipulated. But if you talk to them about how, what they do, you know, obviously it, there's no better way to convince them than to, you know, convince them with themselves. That's a much more eloquent way of doing it. I, I found myself in an arbitration. I was fortunate there was not a jury here because I, I think it would have backfired, but it was against uh, Allstate on a first party claim. And I asked the attorney for Allstate where the playbook was for, for what to do after an accident. I said, because if my client doesn't treat, they're not hurt. If they do treat, they treated too much. If they went back to work, it, it means that they don't have an injury. If they didn't go to work, they didn't have a doctor's note. And so I went through this whole exercise and, and, you know, the arbitrator got it. A jury may not appreciate that. It was a little bit more abrasive than I probably would ever do in a courtroom, but I understand what you're saying there. You have to be able to explain things in a way that put some context around it, it makes sense to people that they can understand why people make decisions that they make, because it's easy for someone to quickly judge something if they don't have proper context, if they don't understand why decisions were made the way that they were made. And no, there is no playbook. There is no book. There is no like instructions that you follow post-accident and post-injury on what you should do. That just doesn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, exactly. Bringing up Bring it, and that's what Vaudier is all about. Uh, but I, I know there are some judges who will sometimes, it's strange, kind of say, you can't talk about, uh, you know, I've, I've had ones, you know, saying like, if it's a motorcycle accident, you can't ask them about motorcycle riding because now you're asking them about the issues of the case. I mean, those those kind of judges are few and far between because I've also had judges who say, if you're asking a question that has nothing to do with the issues of the case, it's not an appropriate question. So, but I mean, not, you know, I would say 90% of the time or more, but 95% of the time, they'll let you talk about the issues, obviously, involved in the case, as long as you're not obviously linking the, you know, asking them to prejudge the facts. If you're just talking about what they do, it's a perfectly appropriate question. Objective four, learning a juror's values so that you can tell your case to convince them that you're case shares their values. I think this is kind of what you've already answered and explained. And it's, 
the idea is setting things up in a way that you do get the most fair and impartial juror, uh, jury, not just juror, but like the jury as a whole, but also that you're putting things in context so that when you get to an opening, if you don't get the luxury of a mini opening, like you would get in California, this, this isn't a surprise to people what we're talking about. There was, there was a reason you asked the questions. There was a reason we had that discussion in jury selection. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the part three we, we just talked about had it dealt more with their approaches and reactions, the ways that they do things. And this is more their val- their underlying values. Talking about their values sometimes is really important because, um, you know, and one question that I've sometimes asked that I find really helpful in some cases is it's a really open-ended question, but what is one value um, that you feel like is missing from society too much these days? And, um, and you get a lot of really interesting insight into, into jurors. And some of them, obviously, the bad ones will tell you personal responsibility you know, things like that. Um, you know, integrity is one that sounds good, but usually is kind of more of a defense thing because they're talking about, they're basically telling you people lie. And, you know, usually that, that they're thinking people who are filing lawsuits, but some people will say, you know, empathy and, you know, corporate accountability and things like that. But you want to make sure obviously that their values are, um, you know, simpatico with, lawsuits and whatever you're suing over, whether it's suing over, you know, suing a company over treating employees fairly, you know, basically it's making sure that they think that the laws, you know, as much as we talked about, as much as you want to get them talking, can you enforce this law? Probably the better question is, do you agree with the law? Do you think it's fair in the first place? Uh, I, you know, I always like to spend a lot of time more asking that latter type of question, you know, like for example, in an employment case, I've asked a lot of times, you know, about how, well, how do you feel about any laws that say that a company, you know, has to basically give someone a medical leave and hold their job potentially even for many months, maybe even over a year sometimes. Does that seem fair to you or not? Regardless of what, you know, and, and the jurors will tell you, you know, oh yeah, that seems that's absolutely fair. That's important. Or, or sometimes they'll tell you that seems incredibly unfair. And I don't, you know, and then you can kind of get them into, yeah, would be, that be a law that you can't enforce necessarily, but making sure that their values match up with the values of your case is really important because, uh, you know, getting them to say they can follow the law, you're, you're still, still kind of missing the boat and, and kind of asking them to self-diagnose their own, their own bias. Harry, we have a lot of people that are not attorneys that follow this podcast, and I'm sure there are going to be a couple that have logged in waiting uh, almost 50 minutes to find out the secret to getting off of jury duty. What is the secret to getting out of jury duty? <laughs> That's a great question. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's websites that do a great job. You know, for me, well, here, here's, my, you know, I mean, obviously, number one is probably lying, but you're probably going to get in trouble because judges really, they see it all the time and they see the excuses and they see the lies. And, you know, and if you get up there and say you're racist, I mean, I once had someone, a juror, say something like, uh, you know, I don't believe in the civil justice system. And so the judge said, oh, there's a criminal courthouse right down the street. I can send you there. And he went, no, 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 no. You know, uh, here's what I would say. The, the, the more opinionated you are, and you don't have to lie about it, but the, the stronger opinions you have, the more you're going to scare both sides. Um, you know, the, friend, the jurors who don't talk very much tend to stay. The jurors who are just super friendly and easygoing and don't have strong opinions tend to stay. If you have strong opinions about things. Um, you know, even if you're saying you can be fair and judges can tell if you keep insisting you can be fair, I can totally fair, but this is how I feel. And you have some really strong opinions. You tend to scare. Oh, and all it takes is scaring one side into, into, um, excusing you. Um, but if you have really strong opinions on both sides, I mean, you usually scare both sides. And so that's probably the best way, but to me, I insisting over and over again, that you can be fair and you're not trying, not trying to get off the jury, honestly, is the best way for a judge to uh, not get angry at you and, and think that, and believe everything that you say after that. Harry, if you work, you've worked with some of the best attorneys in the country, you've had stunning verdicts returned on the cases that you've consulted on. Boil it down to one thing. What's the one thing, the consistency among all of that, that helps create these, these outcomes? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I always say that there's, there are four things that really matter in terms of success in trial. Um, and they all matter and they all are, uh, but there, there's an order of importance of them. Uh, number four is for the, is how is your plaintiff basically how, how likable are they are, how trustworthy they are to me. That's the fourth most important. It's, it is important, obviously, but uh, the other things are more important. Number three uh, and people, this is what surprises people. Number three are the facts. If you have great facts and maybe a lousy plaintiff, 
um, you're usually going to win that case. I'd rather have good facts and an, and an imperfect plaintiff than the best plaintiff in the world and some and not such great facts. Number two, though, um, is the attorney, the quality of the attorney. And number one is the quality of your jury. You, If you have a lousy jury that just you know, doesn't like lawsuits, not receptive. You could have the best lawyer in the world, the best facts, the best plaintiff. It doesn't matter. You're not going anywhere. It's dead on arrival if you have a bad jury. Um, but uh, so what, I think the one of the things I want to talk about. So, I mean, jury selection is so important. And, and every case that has gone really well, we've had a pretty, you know, we've had at least a receptive jury. Um, but number two, the, I think the quality of the lawyer is is underrated. I would rather go to trial and, and bet on a case with a really terrific lawyer with some challenging facts than an inexperienced lawyer or a lawyer who's not that great with the best facts in the world. Um, and, and the reason for that, I think, is just credibility is so important. The credibility of the lawyer is so critically important. And there's a million ways to try a case. There's no one style that works. Uh, I mean, this, you know, there's so many people, I don't know if, if most of your viewers are from where they're from, but here in California, there's so many great lawyers with so many different styles. Nick Rowley, who I think you've had on here, has a an amazing style that's totally different than the style of, of someone like Gary Dordick or Ricardo Echeverria out here in California. Um, so there's no one style that works, but the one thing that I think is consistent is their ability to be, to build credibility with the jury, to be honest with the jury, to come across as reasonable, even when they're asking for a lot. Um, and I think that's something that you just can't, can't replace. Um, and I think that, um, the amazing thing to me about trial lawyers and plaintiff trial lawyers is that it doesn't, you could have the greatest reputation and track record in the world, but you have to bring it each and every time. Every time you get in front of a new jury, you're starting from scratch. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Um, you can't ever rest on your laurels. You got to do it each and every time. You can't mail it in. And so uh, I think the, the most important part is just that building credibility from the, from the beginning. If you have a lawyer who knows how to do that, um, you know, that's the most important thing. But how do you... So I'll use my, my good friend, Jamie Simpson. You worked on a case with her and got an yes. incredible outcome. She's not Nick Rowley. She's not Panis. She's not Dordick. You know, she's not John Morgan or, or um, um, Keith Mitnick, right? She's not these like big names that are out there. How do you be yourself and still build that credibility? How do you, because I know there's a lot of young attorneys that are going to listen to this and they're going to be like, Harry, I'm not those guys, I, but I, I want to go to trial. I want to help my clients but I don't know how to be me in that courtroom so that I do get that, that credibility between myself and, and the jury and ultimately between my client and the jury. What do you tell them? I, I always tell them you, you got to be yourself. You can't ever, you're never going to be able to copy some of these other lawyers. Um, and you should never try because it's not going to come across as genuine. You just have to find out, you have to first of all, be yourself and then figure out as you go through and practice, be the best version of yourself. You know, are you, um, really emotional? Are you really factual? Are you, but whatever you are, whatever your style is, uh, jurors can, can sense when someone's being genuine and when someone's being reasonable. And you have to find out opportunities early on in the case, whether it's, uh, you know, from the very beginning in jury selection and opening to show them that you were reasonable. And, and some of those things include like ways to show them that you're trying to be fair. You know, it may be um, convincing a juror who is biased for you that you don't want them and showing and saying, you know, and being and instead of trying to trying to scramble to rehabilitate them and keep them on the jury saying that wouldn't be fair. We, we don't want to, you know, we want a fair fight too. It sounds like given your experience that you really wouldn't be fair to the other side. And so, you know, letting them go. I mean, that that's one thing that builds a ton of credibility with the jury, um, not arguing with the jurors in, in jury selection and not pushing anything on them in jury selection really builds a lot of credibility. Um, you know, they expect lawyers from the get go to be try to be manipulative and tell them what to think. And if you don't do that, you're just listening to them and thanking the, the badgers who hate lawsuits and thanking them, um, that builds credibility. Um, you know, in your opening statement, finding ways to tell the story, uh, you know, framing it carefully, but never telling jurors what to believe before they've come to that conclusion. I mean, that's that's the the, the best way to, to destroy your credibility is to get up there and, you know, basically say this defendant is a liar and irresponsible. And the jurors are going, whoa, you know, you can't tell me to, to, to think that. And so... Um, no, but you know, I, I can't really speak to what their style is, but I would say find your style. You don't have to be loud. You don't have to be, uh, persuasive in an obvious way. And I think actually doing that can be to your detriment. Um, you know, finding ways to be reasonable and show your jurors that you're listening to them. 
Um, another huge way, I think, is showing your jurors in voir dire in an opening statement that you understand what the other side is saying and you understand the weaknesses of your case and you're you're talking about them with them. Um, that shows them, hey, this, this person is reasonable. So every opportunity you can to build credibility and show them that you're focused on what the truth is and you just want a fair jury and you just want a fair result and you understand and here's why um, our, you know, we, you know, our, our case should prevail, even though there are issues with the case. Um, you know, there isn't one specific way to do it. I wish I could, um, you know, have folks on here and diagnose them and everything, but I, I would say find opportunities to show me you're reasonable and, and, and always be yourself. Don't ever copy somebody else because that's always going to come across as, as disingenuous. Harry, I end every podcast with what I call the fast five. It's five fun questions for you that have nothing to do with what we've been talking about. Uh, will Perfect. you indulge me in the fast five? Absolutely. Okay. Question number one, who's your hero? Who is my hero? Oh gosh. You know, for me, uh, you know, I, I don't have a, a, a one answer on that, but um, one thing that I've been pushing for lately, I know it comes to this is, is uh, you know, women trial attorneys who are, uh, you know, I'm really impressed with, with the women trial attorneys who are really fighting to um, get the respect that they deserve. It's not easy to do. I see the biases from the judge, opposing counsel, even from plaintiff side at times. And so I really am impressed and, and I'm happy to, to try to help champion them, give them more opportunities in the courtroom. But and really anybody who's, who is persevering despite facing institutional discrimination and, and, and bias and things like that. What's your biggest fear? Oh gosh, my biggest fear. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a family man. I have a couple of young kids, um, you know, making sure that the world is a safe place for my kids in the future is probably my biggest fear. Um, you know, and making sure that I got that, that work-life balance where, I mean, this is a tough job. I'm sure for all the attorneys here, it takes away a ton of your time. And for those of you who have kids and for me, me too, making sure that I maintain balance with my kids and recognizing that being a, a father and a husband is the most important job. It's, it's easy to lose sight of that because I love trying cases and, and helping lawyers try cases, but, um, you know, making sure that I'm there for my kids, probably biggest fear that I think about every day. If you could go on one of those SpaceX type crafts up to space and come back down, you can take one guest. Who do you take? So you have one person that gets to travel with you. Right. You know, I would, I would have to say my wife, I love to do, I love, you know, we work together. We don't necessarily work on the same cases, but a lot of times people will tell us, um, how do you work with your spouse? Isn't that terrible? You know, I love it. I'd love spending time with her. And so she'd always be my first choice to take anywhere with me. That's great. Uh, what, if any useless talent do you have? Oh, useless talent. Good question. Um, you know, for some reason I'm, I'm outstanding at darts. I don't know why that's like, there was some Olympic thing for darts. I'm really good at it. I can't throw it. You know, when I pitched, I, when I was a kid playing little league and baseball, um, I was a great pitcher in terms of accuracy. I didn't throw it hard. It doesn't really matter in darts. That's one of them. Um, yeah, I guess I'll go with that one. Okay. Final question. Would you rather go back into the past and meet your ancestors or travel into the future to meet your great grandchildren? I guess I would say future. I guess, you know, we know what, we know what the past was all about, although there, I'm sure there's, I, and I love the question that I used to ask, like, if you could go, if you're a sports fan or if you're any fan, what would be the one sporting event or, or historical event you would go back to? And witness is always a fun one to ask, but I think I would actually go with future because I'm curious to see what's, you know, what's, what the future is going to be like. I'm, I'm assuming it's not going to be anything like any, any of our guesses. Um, let me ask you that question. Are you a sports fan, Jonathan? I am. And I was just thinking, oh gosh, don't ask me that, Harry, because I, I, there are so many uh, that I would want to go witness. And I am, gosh, I don't even know what specific sporting event it would be. Maybe, you know what? I am, you know, I'm a huge golf nut. And to go back and watch Jack play in the prime of his career, Jack Nicholas, I, I think that would probably be on, on the top of my list because I didn't get to see him. Like, I got to see Jordan play, arguably one of the best basketball players ever. I've got to see Tiger Woods play, uh, arguably one of the best golfers, but you, you can't really compare him to Jack because they played in different, different eras. Uh, you know, I love baseball, but, you know, I can't go back to, I saw the Cubs win a World Series. I was a Cubs fan growing up. So I, you know, to watch them win a World Series, that's cool. Like if they had never done it, I'd say go back to when they won their first World Series and then never really got into hockey for the major sports. Um, so I'd probably want to go back and see Jack play because he was so dominant 
And he seems like such just a great guy. I'd love to just be around that atmosphere when he was dominating the the sport of golf. Sure. You know, it's funny. How about my, you? you know, for me, oh gosh, it's tough. I'll, I'll tell you what, what, what my friend that I always used to ask this question in college, he would always ask the question. Then he would say, there's only one right answer to the question. Although that's obviously not true, but he would always say the right answer is always go back and see a gladiator uh, in ancient Rome, a gladiator battle. <laughs> he just thought that would be the most incredible mind blowing thing to see. I don't think I agree with that, but he always believed that nothing could ever compare to watching, you know, guys just chop each other apart or fight lions or whatever, like <laughs> they would do that. Yeah. That's going way back. Yeah. yeah. That is going way back. He liked that. But, uh, you know, for me, um, I, you know, probably just seeing, uh, you know, it might be seen just a, a really, a, you know, like Babe Ruth or something like that. Not that I'm necessarily the biggest Babe Ruth fan, but I bet you sports were just so different, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, and I probably, oh, even for back sure. yeah, just seeing like, what was it like, you know, what would it be, be like watching a football? Well, we, we have video, I guess, of football games in the 50s and 60s. It's a totally different sport now, but just seeing what a, what a sport was like 100 years ago, it just probably doesn't even resemble what, it, what it's like today. Well, and to, to go back to your point about the future, just to try to consider what it might look like 50 years from now. Like we think, I'm like, how can it get better than it is right now? How can it get faster? How can it get more uh, tech savvy? How can it be... You know, they dial in the human body in all the different sports in so in so many ways. How can it evolve? But it will. And it'll look completely different. And it will be completely different in 50 years. And I can't even begin to imagine what that will look like. But we to think that we've hit the 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 tip is of the iceberg is not even close to where sports will continue to evolve to. And obviously us as human beings as well. But that's why when I look at technology, I love to ask that question as it relates to technology. What's the biggest piece of technology that has come about in your lifetime? And, you know, I love asking people that question because people have all different opinions. Some people, it's just the personal computer. Some people, it's the internet. Some people, it's the phone. Some people, it's, you know, there's all the TV. I mean, there's all sorts of things that have just evolved and changed. And depending on where you are in your life and what you've experienced, it can be any one of those things or a million other things. I think it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. I I think for, I mean, I think it has to be for me, the internet, because... I remember as a kid who was who grew up in the in the 1980s, where I remember having to you know having to wait for information, having to go to the library to to find something in the encyclopedia. Look about if you were like, what year was the you know what year did the you know Cubs last win the World? You'd have to go down to the to the library. Or as a sports fan, I don't know why it's all coming back to sports, but <laughs> it's my frame of reference. But you know, if I want to know like, are the Red Sox winning? Or something you'd have to wait till headline news till remember they, they used to do updates at like 59 minutes past the hour and 29 minutes past the hour and you'd have to wait when they would do the the update like you couldn't just see what a score was on your phone or on the so the internet for me just blew everything all the doors off of of everything and for jurors it's interesting because you know can you imagine what a trial i mean that'd be interesting what trial would you go back and see like some trial in the 1920s or 50s because you know the jurors would just listen and now they're expecting information right you know, okay, where's the graphic? Show me the document. Where's so, you know, um, it just might. Well, yeah. You're right. And our attention spans have shrunk over time. And I think that's part of it. I, you know, I'll be in the car with my wife and we'll be talking about something and a, a weird fact will come up. Who was in that movie? And then she's immediately on her phone looking it up. And I'm thinking before we had that, which I'm just like you, I grew up in a day and age where I used an encyclopedia to do my research reports. I knew the Dewey decimal system at the library yep. and waiting for information there was a there was almost like a treat to it. There was a little bit of purity to that, like not knowing everything right now. I, I've heard someone say our problem right now is an information overload. It's lack of filtration. We don't know how to keep out all the stuff that we're being bombarded bombarded with all the time. It's not that there's so much. It's that we don't we don't know how to like deflect different things and keep them away from us because there's so much being thrown at us all the time. Information consumption is at an all time high. It will continue to evolve. And how do you dilute that down and pay attention to what's important and get to the things that actually matter? I think that's a little bit of a challenge for our younger generations now, maybe even for us in a different way. But I definitely see that. I'm like, holy cow, you don't need to know everything the minute you think of it. But we've now been preconditioned, right, to to believe that and and know that we can find it at our fingertips. Yeah, Yeah, it's okay. I don't know if it's so much an attention span issue as a patience issue that we that we don't have anymore. But, you know, are people better informed than they were 20 years ago? Probably not. Um, but, you know, <laughs> oh, let me ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Sure. Just this is totally speculation. But do you think juries, not juries, I'm sorry, do you think uh, trials will shrink in time because of the attention span issue and because of the fact that 
we get Amazon packages delivered in hours and people expect things now. They don't want to sit through four and five days, sometimes weeks of information to get to the, the finale. Do you think, do you see that happening over time going into the future? Um, I would say probably not, but I think, you know, I think for plaintiffs, it's beneficial. Uh, I think it helps us when we have judges that really limit the time and say, okay, I'm going to, I hear you saying this is going to be a four week trial, but I'm going to give you 18 hours per side. I think that, <laughs> you know, what happened. There's some judges out here in Los Angeles who do it. You're like, wow, it's shocking. Um, I think it benefits the plaintiff to keep it simple. Uh, I think it benefits the defendant to try to make it as confusing and complex as possible. I, the only reason I say no to that question is because I think that um, I think the defense will push against it. Um, but uh, I think it's a good, I mean, if it happens, I think it's a good thing. I think forcing us to really streamline things and simplify things makes it, makes our cases better. Um, so I, I hope so, but I would guess, no, I think there's always going to be a pushback. And I think that there's always enough bureaucracy that we're just going to do it the way that we've done it. It's going to take a lot to, to change that, I think. Harry Plotkin, I could talk to you all day long. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time for this podcast. Uh, I'm sure people will get a great benefit from it. I'd love to have you back in the future. I know you're real, real busy, but the art of jury selection is just a delight to talk to you about. You're one of the best. And I will put your contact information up on the screen so people can reach out to you if they have uh, questions or want to talk to you personally. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I love talking about jury selection. And for, for those of you who are trial lawyers, good luck getting getting in front of a jury sometime this year or early next year because it's a great time, I know. And uh, and jurors are, you know, there was a fear that I think jurors would be reluctant to want to be jurors and reluctant to give big verdicts. And it's just the opposite. So uh, good luck and uh, don't be afraid to, to get in front of a jury. Thanks, Harry.